You're listening to the Pennsylvania Woodsman, powered by Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network. This show is driven to provide relatable hunting and outdoor content in the Keystone State and surrounding Northeast. On this show, you'll hear an array of perspectives from biologists and industry professionals to average Joes with a lifetime of knowledge. All centered around values aiming to be better outdoorsmen and women, both in the field as well as home and daily life. No clicks, no self-interest, just the light in the pursuit of creation. And now, your host, the man who's too good to stop for a roadkill deer to check it out, Mitchell Shirk. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode. Hope you guys are doing well. Uh, Hard to believe that it is uh, over and done with. Unless you are in one of the extended seasons that you can hunt to the end of January, when this episode releases, we will officially be done with the 23-24 deer season in Pennsylvania. And to me, it doesn't matter how well my season goes all the time, it's still a sad day. Just because I love hunting deer, I love sitting in the stand, I love watching them and interact, um, and... I love shooting deer too. <laughs> I can't. I can't lie. It's fun to shoot deer, but that's just part of the process. I really enjoy the entire process, even the off-season process. And uh, before we get into this week's episode, I, I do want to share. It was pretty cool. I had a fun hunt to close the year out. I was able last week. I shot a doe, and uh, it was it was a lot of fun. So the the place that I hunted, it was an invite. Uh, property that you know is is let's just say it has deer (laughs) and uh i was i was told hey go to this one stand on my property it was an enclosed box blind and you know the deer uh there's a clover plot in the front and where i accessed into the the blind on this tree line there uh it was a it was a big winter wheat field and as I'm walking into the stand, I'm walking across this wheat field. I'm looking. I'm like, man, there are a lot of deer tracks here. I'm thinking, well, no wonder. It's wintertime and it's green. What's, what else is going to be the best food source? So I'm thinking, I won't be surprised if I actually see deer behind me tonight. Well, I uh, I get in the stand. Like I said, it's on a clover plot, but clover was uh, – it's – pretty dormant so really wasn't expecting a lot of use on that but you never know something might pop out and probably about 45 minutes before uh, quitting time I looked out the back in the back corner and sure enough the the corner of the wheat field there's a bunch of deer I just see bodies I start glassing and it's does and fawns and the closest one at the time was 135 yards so I'm obviously hoping something's going to come a little closer. Now, it ended up, I think there was around 10 of them out feeding in this wheat field. They kept piling in and out. And uh, about six of them had gone and fed their way down, kind of paralleling me, and exited the corner of the field and headed towards, you know, this thick bottom. And I could see the deer making their way down through this bottom, just glimpses of it as I'm glassing through. You know, it's weedy, it's grassy and stuff like that. I could just see them going down through. I'm thinking, well, they're probably, they're on a mission, that's it. But there was four that stayed out in the field. 
And as I'm watching them, they're, and keep in mind, they're behind the tree line for me. So even if they were in range, there was no shooting involved happening. But I thought, well, there's a chance if they feed across, they'll come into an opening. And sure enough, I started watching them, and all of a sudden I look, and here comes the lead doe. And she's feeding uh, left to right from behind behind me, left to right, and she's she's working her way over towards this big opening I have in the tree line. I thought, oh, I might have a chance here gets closer to the opening I, I get my gun ready when i sit in a box blind with a with a flint lock i never put pan powder in i've just had too many instances where you put pan powder and you're in a closed blind with the windows closed and there's moisture in there and it dampens your pan powder so i had uh, i had a paper towel stuffed in my pan with my lock forward just to hopefully wick moisture i don't know if that works or not but it seems to for me and uh, so I got the gun, I put some pan powder in, got all situated. <clears throat> I ranged the deer and I got 85 yards. I thought, okay, that's good enough for me. Let's make it happen. And she literally keeps walking, keeps walking, and stops behind the last walnut tree before I would ha- be going bat and taking a shot. And she stops. Well, no big deal. She stops. She's going to walk out. Nope. She stayed there and stayed there and stayed there and stayed there. And she started feeding there. And the little ones caught up to her. And the first deer that came out, I thought, ooh, is that her? I better check. Looked in the binoculars. Nope, it was a little one. And there was three little ones and this mature doe. And till it was said and done, all three of the little ones came out in the opening. And the big doe just stayed behind this tree. Now, when she decided to come out in the opening, she had already walked straight away from me. So when she came out, she was about 100 yards. And 100 yards is, a, is pushing it. That's a, that's a poke. Um, you can do it. I've practiced that far, but that's a poke. And the other thing I didn't like was it was getting dark, and it's getting harder to see your, your uh, iron sights with a deer that far. I'm, like, I'm not shooting this far. That's just not happening. So I'm... You know, I'm scanning the area and watching these deer and just thinking, I'm happy that I saw a bunch of deer. This was a fun sit. And about the time I'm saying that to myself, I look over and I don't know if they were different deer or if it was the same ones I saw earlier. But from the direction I saw the deer exit the wheat field earlier, those six, um, keep in mind they were well over 200 yards where I saw them leave. I look over in that direction and hear through the thick stuff about 60 yards, I see bodies coming and they're coming out into the open, into the wheat field behind me. But I had a big opening right there where they were headed. I thought, oh, this is perfect. Um, I got all situated, um, gun out the window, and I thought I better look into binoculars. It was plenty of light to shoot, but it was one of those where it was a cloudy evening and it was like kind of hard to see with your naked eye what deer is what. So I threw the binoculars up on the first deer and when I saw it right away I'm like yep that's a big mature doe. So she steps in the opening and uh, I did a mouth grunt to stop her and left her have it and I mean it was a perfect timing shot. It went off really, really fast. I actually, it was a windy night, so the smoke really dissipated fast after the shot to the point where I actually saw 
the bullet um, hit the dirt on the other side of the deer. So I, I knew I had a complete pass through because she, she bucked and she ran hard. And I watched her go pretty good ways um, out of sight. I actually think where where I found the deer was, I actually think I saw it fall over. But uh, it was a lot of fun. <laughs> I couldn't get over how excited I was afterwards. I was like, you've done this before and you've shot doe before. Like, I can't believe it. And I'm glad I do. I'm really glad I get that excited. I always like to try to get one deer with the flintlock. I enjoy that weapon. I've uh, I've kind of made it something in the in my mind and I want to bring it to the forefront. I, I really want to be the most proficient with that gun as possible. I do okay. I, that's what I say. I, I think the average person shooting those flintlock muzzle loaders, I think I'm definitely within the average. I don't think I'm below average, but I don't I don't feel like I'm a dead stone cold killer with that gun. And I'd really like to be because one goal I have is I would like to shoot um, a good buck with the flintlock muzzleloader. And I don't know if I'm going to do that in Pennsylvania or if it's going to be something that I try to do on an out-of-state hunt. I know Maryland has an early October muzzleloader season. You know, maybe that's an opportunity for me to try that with the flintlock. But I, I would like to shoot a buck with that. Um, so, yeah, that was uh, that was kind of the, the cap off to my season. It was a lot of fun. And, you know, shifting gears here, um, and, and getting to this week's episode, deer season is still in the forefront of my mind. But every time I'm in the stand, I'm thinking about what can I do to improve this spot? Um, what could be done to improve this spot? And uh, watching the deer and how they behave and how can you manipulate their movements and where can you add more food and yada, yada, yada. And uh, with that, I, I thought it would be a good opportunity to get somebody on here that does this for a living. And this week's episode is with John Teeter from Whitetail Landscapes. Um, John probably has, I, I probably of all the pod, I don't listen to a ton of podcasts, but the ones I do, I probably listen to John's the most. And I think it's because he's got really, really good deer hunting podcasts. They are land and habitat based. However, there's a lot of deer hunting and hunting strategy. Um, this guy, again, before you turn this off because you're a public land guy or you don't have a lot of private land, there's a lot of deer hunting and deer behavior within his podcast and in this very conversation that we have, and you could take a lot away from it. But the, the topic is mainly bedding areas and tree cutting. We're going to talk a little bit about uses of hinge cutting, um, versus, you know, just felling trees, uh, <coughs> design and structures within bedding areas, how to get deer to move where you want. And we, we talk a lot about philosophy and our approach to viewing a bedding area. How do we set this up in a manner that's going to stack deer in, make them feel comfortable, use it during daylight hours, maximize your potential of the bedding area. And newsflash, um, spoiler alert, it's more than just clear cutting it's more than just cutting the cutting and clearing the canopy and allowing the sunlight to hit the floor and then just letting them do their thing there's a lot more detail in john's work and that's why i wanted to have him on to uh to, to just really highlight that so this is fantastic conversation i really enjoy john i think he's got a lot to offer um this guy's full of knowledge his, his level of detail to things 
I think far surpasses much of what you're used to in the whitetail hunting world. But he's really he's at the same time uh, real good down to earth guy. Really enjoyed John, uh, and uh, I really enjoyed this podcast. So glad to have him on. Uh, let's get to it, Rick. Right before we do, uh, shout out to our sponsors, Radix Hunting. Guys, if you are looking to change up your camera gear, if you want to switch to cameras that, in my opinion, work as good as anything, have awesome image quality, if you're using a cell camera from Radix, simple with the Scout Tech app, uh, really, really simple to set up and use the M cores or the, the standard Gen 600 cameras, check out Radix Hunting. Um, I'm anxious to run these in the off-season, run them for turkeys and everything else. Um, but I, I, I enjoyed using these cameras. They definitely surpass the cheapo, junky ones that I have used so often in the past. Um, they also got a lot of other things to offer. First of all, their box blinds, tree stands. I use their hang-on trez tree stands, and uh, they were out of this world quiet i was really happy with that it wasn't like some of the other old stands i've used with clinking metal and stuff solid and stable and quiet uh stick and pick trail camera accessories you name it lot to offer from radix hunting and it's a step up in that world if you're looking to upgrade so check out radix hunting uh let's get to this episode with john All right, joining me on today's show, I've got uh, my good friend here, uh, host of Whitetail Landscapes podcast, John Teeter. John, thank you for taking some time coming on our show. Yeah, great. I'm happy to happy to be here. You got a lot of great guests on your show, so uh, <laughs> I'm just happy to be able to contribute. Well, uh, likewise to you. I mean, I've I've uh, I've noticed you've you've had a bunch of new guests. You know, you, you know, for those of you who don't listen to John's show, first of all, you need to whether you're um, a private land hunter or you're a public land hunter, there's a lot of things that relate to uh, buck activity, buck behavior that can help you hunting. Uh, and, and John really does a good job, and so do his, his guests. But I've noticed you've had a couple newer people. You have a lot of reoccurring people, a lot of people that you know are within the, um, the, the private world and consulting community, and you've kind of expanded upon that. And it's, it's been really interesting to see a lot of those relationships develop. I really like how you uh, kind of bring together as a community, because I definitely think within the private land consulting stuff, there, there's definitely some egos and stuff that go on. And you don't get that at all with your show, John, and I really appreciate that. Yeah, thanks, Mitch. Um, I think the big thing with my show is I'm bringing like-minded people together to educate. Like, we're not in this just for business reasons or making money, right? And that's a lot of these people that are I see trying to come up in the, this side of the industry, that's their entire focus. They want to have name recognition. Uh, they want to make money, right? And, and that's a business, right? You got to run like a business. A lot of these guys are established and they have businesses and their approach has been, you know, I learn as you go and they learn from people around you. And it really is, it is kind of, I feel like the best of the best. And, um, you know, I've had a chance to physically meet with people, to cut with people. So I've got a chance to interact with some of these guys and it's, you know, it's the Jim Wards, it's the Jake Ellingers, right? It's those type of guys that I feel like have been, I want to say ground changing or, earth shattering. They, they've brought a lot to the table for folks. And it's my job as the younger generation to take it to the next level and think even more finer detail. And, and, and um, this isn't just a broad brush type business. There's real nuances and 
particularities and things that I'm working on that make you know my designs and my philosophies unique to my perspective. But there's a whole host of like I'm going to do. Um, there's a podcast we just did on introducing cattle and pigs on the landscape, which is kind of cool. How to benefit your deer hunting with adding poultry. I mean, come on, things that you don't always think about. Uh, I'm going to work on new projects, a couple of research scientists this year that you're going to see how we build agroforestry. And so I'm taking some farming practices and I'm putting it to the betterment of, of our deer and deer hunting, which is really cool. And I think kind of helps people just look at things a little more, I don't know, holistically. And, and you know, we're not just always deer centric. So hopefully that helps people think a little more about the show. Yeah, I think there's a lot of us that are definitely the, the number one priority, right, is white tails and mature deer and yada, yada, yada. But uh, I think there's very few people that can justify spending the the funny, uh, uh, the money solely on whitetails without having some other way of justifying that land purchase. I know sometimes it's a family property and stuff like that, but you want to talk about the, the price of land and investing stuff. Usually there's got to be a way to make it pay and utilize it for other aspects, especially if you've got a family. So there's a lot to it. And uh, I think that's one one question I have for you. Uh, one of the hardest things that I've had, you know, I've been fortunate to have some conversations with people, mostly on the food plot side of things. But usually my food plot conversations all relate to hunting and hunting strategy and how you're going to do things throughout your hunting property. And I think the thing that I struggle with the most is... Uh, just the the communication side of things is how do I communicate what is going through my head the way I'm visualizing this property and explaining how I, I'm I'm you know seeing this um, changing the way people hunt or changing the way somebody uh, views their property and then uh, also the consideration of how their family might want to use the property that that that's a really tough thing how have you navigated that topic over the years because it's one thing to do it for yourself it's another to do it for somebody else and explain it to them and then execute it yeah it's <laughs> that's a pretty loaded question and a lot of times we start with objectives like why did you buy the land and when you start boiling it down, some sometimes it's just I want to get away, you know, and and and, th and that might just be you know because of their stress of life, and they want a more enjoyable hunting experience. So, you know, or they might not have the time to invest in their property, and so they don't see the vision. So my job is to give them vision, and in in that we explore their goals and objectives, and we we follow the, some of the principles which are really kind of just land form management principles. And the other piece of it is looking at like, you know, taking it to a finer level. Like if your goals are simply, you know, I want better deer hunting, that's such a an abstract goal. Let's mm -hmm. define that a little bit more. And so I'm building charts and tables. And when I do my consulting visits, we look at, you know, land mass, uh, ge geographic benefits, you know, to your particular landscape area, breaking down, you know, the plant life, the volume of plants, the, just, just looking at every aspect of the property and when you start having those conversations more will, will reveal itself they don't understand their goals a lot of times so i'm i'm not force feeding things down the throat i'm asking questions and thinking through different objectives to get them okay what am i actually trying to create here and how much time do i have what are my resources and usually what happens is you know they may put in things to appease their family members you know ponds right pollinator planting. Some people want honey. Some people want grapes. Some people want an apple orchard. You know, there's just different things that, you know, are concluded where you start to add aspects of their design and philosophy. Maybe they want to bring their kids hunting. And so you have to think of a design, a hunting property for children rather than adults. 
and there, there's a there's a different strategy there with the kids than there are parents and and so how how quickly you have to adapt to you know people's either belief system or you know how they how they're educated i mean there's just it's a lot to it you can't just jump in this and hope to just educate people i'm like you got to do it this way well it doesn't work that way yeah it is very loaded and like i said uh, uh goals and objectives are a huge huge thing and <clears throat> one of the things, I, the main reason I wanted to bring you on today, John, um, I wanted to talk about you know some off-season stuff that we're going to do here in the wintertime. Um, <clears throat> and we're, we're going to try to be a little bit on the specific side, but I, I do understand that ev- everything is very case-by-case case in a property. You know, it's, it, there's, there's no um, cookie-cutter um, answer for bedding areas and cutting on a property like there, there's going to be specific things but we're, we're going to try to go through a couple scenarios and cutting and uh and work and just pick your brain on it in perspective so as we're uh, as we're going through and, and this episode launches our statewide deer season in Pennsylvania here just closed. Uh, our flintlock muzzleloader season just closed. Now, if you're in, you know, the, the extended areas, you can still do some hunting to the end of January, but we're just closed. And I know a lot of people, you know, fresh in their mind, the hunting experiences they had and everything else that they, have, they want to improve. Usually the first thing I hear people talk, talk about doing is, is breaking out the chainsaws. And I want to cut some trees down. I want to, I want to cut some bedding areas. I want to make some sunlight for when spring green up happens to get things thicker. Um, oh, you know, the other thing too, is a lot of people will say, well, I want to cut some trees down. So we've got some tops to feed deer and you know, get some browse, you know, at, at uh, ground level. And that's all well and good. But <clears throat> one of the things I'm really interested in is, is being deliberate because I just hunted a property this week that uh, the landowner has done a bunch of cutting, but it, it's very random. I mean, it's in bedding areas, but it doesn't relate to the hunt, in my opinion. I think it makes it very, very hard. So I want to kind of break that down a little bit with you. Um, you know, first off, off the bat, um, you, you killed a great buck this year, and uh, you you talked about that a little bit on your podcast this year. I, I'm kind of curious: were there specific cutting strategies used for you to harvest that deer? Yeah, I actually cut the bedding area before the season just to kill not that specific deer, but one of the older age class deer on my property. So in that instance, uh, typically. You know, I'm dealing with a lot of hillside and undulation. So my elevation changes a couple hundred feet in different areas, which is a good thing. It also makes the deer uh, be more inclined to visual. There's things, what we call as heat maps. So I develop, when I'm looking at a property, a heat map. I look at the cold areas and the warm areas. And that's one of the foundations. I also look at the soil type, the saturation of that soil, and the hydrology. So, you know, this is a little bit deeper than deer hunting. But when you're coming up with a plan, the resident tree life or vegetation that's related to those specific areas will be indicators of deer interest in time. So I'll think about seasonality. You know, when is a deer going to be in a particular area and why? And so if I'm going to be able to define a why with a chainsaw, my objective is to put food in the table at the right time or build the right structure to conceal deer, et cetera. So in that particular area, the cutting technique was there's a shelter wood cut adjacent to that. So there's um, hard maple species, which a lot of times people in shelter, shelter would cut those, but, but I did in that instance. I've got a y- lot of young hard maple coming up in that particular instance. Some of the some of the area trees include beech in the sunnier zones. I hinge cut those. Hinge, beech hinge cut really, really well. They put a lot of structure, and they were good quality beech, not diseased beech. So I just want to make sure that's clear. And I wanted to have those species, you know, root shoot 
and to create kind of a concealment factor in that equation. So you see when you're cutting each one of these tree species, you're developing a purpose, whether it's a food purpose, a cover purpose, et cetera. The trick to that area is I opened up a herbaceous zone, meaning I, I created enough volume of sunlight in a particular area. And by the way, another cool part about this is I created water channels. And so these water channels will come off the hill and I swell them into an area. So now I'm adding water into a sunny opening, which makes it more voluminous and herbaceous material, which creates a, creates a good feeding zone. So think about like a big circle. And in the circle, I had all these different cutting techniques, shelter wood, meaning I leave seed trees, trees to produce more trees. I have an understory of trees underneath that, which I would prefer like dogwood species, et cetera. But I got maple and I've got beech on in adjacent. I've got some ironwood in a couple areas and basically picking each tree, its quality, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's status on the landscape. You know, is it, it is a, a subordinate tree or is it a, is it a co-dominant tree? And, and just defining each one of the tree species. And really the cool part was I built structure like shrubbery. It looks like shrubbery because on my property, it's all wooded. I wish I had shrubland areas. Now I'm trying to create that in pockets, but what I always found was deer have a tendency to just soak up the cover in high, highly under pressure situations. So if I can create the right volume of cover and like a little bit of a herbaceous area, the deer have a tendency to bed in those areas frequently. And so to speak, one of my, you know, target deer, which is uh, my second and third deer debatable, um, came through that particular area, pushing a doe two days before that. He was breeding her in that area. And then two days following that, he came back through, you know, checking that area for a resident doe. So it kind of worked out in the play of things. And, um, you know, it's just fortunate when you're putting together the story uh, and, and designing a property for a particular time of year. And that was designed for rut hunting. That spot was specifically just for rut hunting. I wanted to have the right volume of structure and composition of that structure in that particular area. And, um, you know, I, I know it sounds like hocus pocus, but, you know, I got guys hunting literally all around me, Mitch. And I have to do so many little things on this 46 acres to make it function correctly. They have to come through this pinch. They're going to use this area at a particular time. You know, I need to know when they're using an area. So I strengthen my property throughout the season by the style of cutting that I make. So I'm not losing as many deer in the rut. My resident doe herd cir can circle. There's a lot of scape cover. I'm thinking a lot through just how they move on the landscape. Yeah, that that's a, that's a really interesting topic. And so, <clears throat> John, you're probably familiar. I think it was a few years ago. Um, there was, I think it was at the Iowa Deer Classic or Midwest Deer Classic or something like that. Two very well-known consultants in the hunt in the whitetail industry came up to the stage in a in a debate format. Um, and, and I'll name drop; it doesn't matter. It was it was Don Higgins and Tony LaPratt. and I I really enjoyed that conversation because I think both of those guys are very knowledgeable, have a, have a lot to offer. But you're talking about very very different areas and unique styles of how they approach their hunting properties. And I think when you start, if you're somebody that owns a property and you're thinking, uh, what do I want to do with this property? I want to make it better. I want, I want this. And you listen to those two different guys' trains of thoughts when it comes to bedding cover and things like that. You can really get yourself lost in the weeds there. Do you think a lot of the strategies that have um, developed across all the different consultants across the country. Do you think that's purely based on 
geography and the the location in which they come from or do you think there's a lot of good strategies they're just different uh, that's a good question i think some of the strategies so some of it some of this is sociobiology so some of the deer have grown up in pressured situations so they're used to hunting or you know being accustomed to a lot of deer you know a, a lot of hunting pressure and that dictates how they move and flow through the landscape. They may be less inclined to move through open areas, just as a simple example. When you start to look at, you know, these different consultants, and this, this is really a tough question because, you know, if you look at their individual property, so you look at Don Higgins' property, you know, he's an island in a sea of, of corn, right? And he's an island property is different from a peninsula property or property that it connects to a, a larger body of other properties. Tony LaPratt's property falls somewhere in between there. Uh, Jake Ellinger is another example. And you can cyberstock all these properties. And it's it's interesting. I did this years and years ago to just figure out, you know, what, what are these guys working with? You look at Jake's property, and Jake's property is considered an island. And so these island properties in their landscapes function a lot different than a property that's connected to other properties. So start there. Now you add in the factor of, you know, what, what is the deer competency, meaning, you know, how do deer perceive their landscape and how do they approach, you know, hunting pressure? How do they, how they, how do they um, anticipate certain stimuli? How do they react? That affects how they move through the landscape, period. So in my world, um, the, you know, I, I hunt elevation, I hunt, you know, industrial parks, right? I have a whole plethora of different understanding of how to hunt different areas. It's, it's really specific to the particular zone that you're hunting in. So if you're hunting a lot of deer, you usually have a food deficiency. Um, you know, if you're hunting, you know, and, and more eyes, right? And that's, that's a concern. That, that changes the style of your bedding layouts and how you set up deer, you know, in these particular areas. Um, that, that's a big, big factor. I don't think Higgins is wrong. I don't think LaPrette is wrong. I just think they never hunted areas like this. I think, you know, without that level of experience, I think the, the tip of the spear, so to speak, is not as sharp as somebody that has to be very particular. And one of my best pieces of advice, and I always feel sad for the guys in the South because they don't get this, is we get a lot of snow here. And my ability to do intel, like forensic intel, and just understanding what's going on in the landscape is far better than most people. And so having that volume of information shows me what deer are eating, when they're in an area, you know, how they're using a particular area, and what conditions they're using it. And so deer that are highly stimulated because of the pressure that's in, in their particular area, they're going to be very motivated to pick certain locations. And so to replicate that or to increase interest in an area, just planting switchgrass or just having diversity pockets isn't good enough. None of that really lays out well because you have to think of how a deer is going to escape, how it returns back to an area, you know. And one of the things that we do with our clients is we separate their properties from the rest of properties with how we cut timber. And with the bedding areas specifically, Mitch, the one thing that I focus on is how do we differentiate our property? And at the same point, how do we control their movement? And not limit them so much where they don't want to enter an area because they're too controlled. Whereas some of these properties that become these islands, you know, they basically create maze systems within the property. Well, we do the same thing. But the density and volume of cover and the concept of separating deer, even the idea of compartmentalization, isn't something that folks like Don Higgins have to consider. Their deer are very, very acclimated to a lot of social pressure. 
there are deer or not. So you'll watch these deer herds in these certain areas congregate and their interactions really important to understand how they, you know, socially segregate, sexually segregate. Those things are all meaningful when you're starting to figure out how to design a hunting property. That's why here you hear everybody talk about buck beds stacked behind, you know, doe bedding areas, et cetera. That separation happens in certain instances more frequently here because, again, sexual segregation is a big thing, particularly more related to age class, too. That's another factor in these uh, these equations. So in a roundabout way, I feel like you have to be very sharp. And if you hunt very tough areas, you tend to be a little sharper. And that doesn't mean I'm smarter than those guys or I have better recommendations. I've just hunted harder areas. And hunting harder areas and being successful and having to be more sophisticated in my approach makes me a little different, particularly in the Northeast. And and I, I won't say they're bad in their recommendations or suggestions. They only know what they know because of the environments they work in. And that's not Pennsylvania. You know, that's not Michigan. They're, they, they don't, they're, they're in different areas. And, and as a result, hunting very mountainous terrain is, is very different than hunting, you know, farmland ground, et cetera. So I think, I think there's a lot in that kind of conversation. If you're looking to simplify your food plot system while enhancing the quality of your soil, you need to check out Vitalize Seed Company. Vitalize provides top quality seed blends designed to fit into their 1-2 planting system. This system has been designed to allow highly diverse plant species to grow synergistically, optimizing nutrient uptake and cycling the way God intended. Reduce your inputs, build your soil, and maximize the quality tonnage for the wildlife in your area. Find out more about this system and get your seed at vitalizeseed.com and be sure to check them out on Instagram and Facebook. Radix Hunting was founded on premium grade trail cameras and continues striving to produce the best cellular and conventional trail cameras on the market today. The Gen 600 is a second generation camera from the Gen series line. With premium video and audio recording capabilities, this product has become well respected as the HD video trail camera. In addition to the Gen series cameras, their M-Core cellular camera has all the features of a quality cell camera at an affordable price. Along with their cameras, they offer stick and pick trail camera accessories to allow you to set your cameras just right. You can find it all at RadixHunting.com and be sure to follow Radix Hunting on Instagram and Facebook. Want to check out Radix cameras in person? Stop in at Little Mountain Outfitters in Richland, Pennsylvania and have a peek. Now, back to the show. There is, and I'm glad you brought that that up, John. Um, and that's why we wanted to have you on this conversation, because um, you and I are very familiar with the, the habitat and terrain and everything else in New York and Pennsylvania and New Jersey and West Virginia and, and all that stuff in the Northeast. It's a very unique area, very high density of hunters and everything else. There's a lot going on there. So let, let's let's come up with some scenarios for, for cutting that are relatable. I, I know you've talked about your property. I think your property's in that neighborhood of 40 acres. A lot of people that listen to this hunt properties, you know, they might have that, that, the back 40, the back 20, the back 10, the back 100 acres, whatever you've got. Um, and, and I know you talked about things being uh, monotonous, uh, mostly timber. I hunt a lot of that. There's a lot of properties. I mean, the property I shot my buck, 100% timber, north-facing slope. Uh, property I've grown up hunting was a, a big chunk of, you know, the same age deciduous oak hickory forest. Um, I hunt some big woods in northern Pennsylvania. That's beech birch maple, you know, Pla- Allegheny Plateau type stuff. So I'm used to hunting that that type of stuff. So 
you know, the first thing that I think about too, I mean, uh, food moves deer and, 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 you know, unpressure food really has an impact on movement outside of hunting pressure. Right. So a lot of the time when I think of stuff, me being the food plot guy, if I'm thinking how I can get in and get out and set a food plot up and move deer, I'm doing that. But when, if that's a small percentage of my property and wherever that lays out and the rest of it, I can dedicate to bedding. I'm kind of curious, um, First of all, do you look at that property and say, um, let's just say it's bare bones, um, um, same age forest, and my goal is I want to shoot the best buck I can, and I don't care what time of the year it is. Um, Tell me a little bit about when you walk into the area that's off the field edge, that's off the food plot, that's we're going to deem to try to stack deer in here, how much do you rely on using what they're doing now in your cutting schemes versus um, I'm just going to cut this based on terrain and get them to move where I want them to move? Okay. That's a, that's a catch 22 issue because a lot of times what I, when I work with the clients, the first thing is what is, what, what have you traditionally done? And a lot of times they don't understand the cadence of movement. And in some cases they do. So understanding the deer's natural movement and tendencies, I think is paramount. They show you how they want to use landscape. You know, there are indicators that, you know, a lot of people, for example, say, you know, deer use saddles and you'll have people that draw designs uh, utilizing saddles. Well, they use, you know, saddles in certain instances um, if they have to move fast through an area. And so some of the data that you look at through, you know, the seasonality will show their inclination to use you know, certain terrain features at certain times. So thinking about that in the scheme of things. So the, the next piece of I look at is I look at the slope and aspect. And I said earlier about the heating and cooling. And you think about how deer enter and exit a property. A lot of times they're using in these highly pressured areas or just areas in general, they want the security of the environment to either conceal them, to give them information, right? And so as they as they transverse the landscape, this is the beauty of snow, you get to, you get to, direct and understand, you know, what that natural movement is. And I play off that most times. In some instances, I'll change their movement and, and that'll be in accordance with the improvements we're trying to make. Generally speaking, and this, I don't want this to sound like hocus pocus, but I can put deer almost anywhere they naturally want to do be. And when I say that naturally want to be is I'm not going to put them in the middle of a swamp, you know, with water sucked up to their bellies, right? I'm putting them in areas that aren't um, saturated with water. Um, generally speaking, when you're looking at hillsides, I'll do earthworks on hillside, right? You've probably heard me talk about putting, you know, multiple tr- uh, trenches or terraces. You know, I'll put swales in. I basically can place deer any, any, any particular area. So the emplacement deer have to relate to some particular long-term purpose. So we, 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 um, there's a concept that I want to introduce. It's called building the cake. This is one of my secrets to designing a hunting property. Okay. And I've talked a little bit of this on my podcast, but it's really simple. You're building value from uh, one point to the next point. And as that value stream increases, there's aspects of bedding, cover, food. You know, there's, there's certain attributes that increase through that value stream. So the first layer of the cake is okay. The second layer is better. And the third layer, the top of the cake, you know, with the candle and the frosting is the best layer. And and so in that process, that puts deer kind of in your hopper. That doesn't always work in the design philosophy. Sometimes we'll hunt in between, and I call it bar- barbell hunting. Um, and, and depending on what you're trying to create on your landscape, 
you want to be really specific on what trees you cut and what trees you don't cut. Like in my area, you know, a lot of times people will like overlook and they'll look totally economic and they'll say, well, uh, these yellow birch, you know, they, they don't really hinge cut well. Well, they hinge cut well during, you know, this time of year. And by the way, uh, their seedling production is highly consumed by deer, one of the most preferred plants on the, these particular landscapes, particularly when there's a good water saturation, I'm not cutting yellow birch or I'm cutting in a lower quantity versus maybe another species like hickory. Well, what type of hickory is that? Is that mockernut hickory? You know, what, what type of hickory is on your landscape? So sometimes understanding the species will dictate where you'll cut and why. And so seasonality is important. Deer want to use certain terrain features at certain times. One huge mistake, Mitch, that people like, it drives me nuts is they'll take a top of a hillside and they'll just put a food plot in there. And the terrain, and, and basically that takes away opportunity for them to hold deer or they'll hunt, hunt an area like that. And it would be more apt to be a bedding area, particularly on these small properties. And so it's cutting those in a way where the deer want to be their seasonality. And really it's the trick of the variation and cutting. If you cut certain styles, like for example, if you do group selection, single tree selection, you do a regenerative cut. If you have a variation in cutting style and picking species, the deer will stay there at a longer interval. And that's the most important piece of the design and layout. And I don't want to make it more complicated, but I'm looking at each individual tree. And in, when my clients, what I basically say, is she pretty or is she ugly? And, you know, not to sound politically incorrect, but we, we, we pick a pretty tree and we, we give it purpose and we address what it does for us in the landscape. And so in that, they start to learn that this tree actually has real ecological function. And that could be, we could cut it and pollard it, meaning we cut it not at the ground, we cut it at a certain interval. And it's like a, you know, it becomes a bush or a shorter tree that gives us visual benefit. Maybe it's a food benefit as a result of that. You know, those are trees that are gonna stump sprout. So we're trying to pick different individual species and group them into categories and say, what does it do for me in the landscape? And then we make the deer, in some instances, do what they naturally want to do. And the trick to every this is, if anybody wants to spend more time in their woods, go walk around right now. Now's the time to scout. Pennsylvania season's over. You know, get out there and start studying your landscape. And then come up, take that information and put it on a map and say, oh, well, at least I know what deer are typically doing because I have the tracks and I understand that and relate to that to some purpose and and use that trail camera data to start to diagnose when they're using those areas. And then maybe you can influence the why. And that's that's where I come into play. I'll tell you why, when, and the magic of hunting happens much easier. I mean, my clients are killing deer in their first hunt. I don't want to waste time with people. And, you know, this time I got to hunt so much this season and, and it was because I wanted to experience unpredictable. Uh, I wasn't strategic. I just went out and had fun. And I think sometimes you just need to have fun in this too. And, and don't get overburdened by some of the things I'm talking about. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, you know, some of the properties that I hunt and stuff, um, I, I've had the, uh, the, the pleasure to learn from some people who I, I admire and appreciate. One of the things I learned years ago, if we'd make a food plot, um, let's and this is back before the days of, of doing box plots. One of the things we'd do is if we had an area that we thought we could make a food plot, the first thing that would be done prior to any heavy work done, chainsaws, you know, dozers, 
equipment such like that was to pick the tree and to pick our access route in and out before any work was ever done. That way we had it nailed down and the, the, the design was built around the stand location. So <clears throat> taking that same concept from a food plot, um, you know, I'm somebody that believes you can definitely kill mature deer on food plots in pressured areas if done right. However, there's a lot more opportunity throughout a property to kill a deer if you do things right. And, and let's talk specifically about bedding areas or transition areas or whatever you want to call them. Maybe, maybe you're, you're necking things down in a, in a high odd spot where you can get in and get out and not, not push. But so my question to you, John, is when, when you look at a property and, and you're looking for stuff that's going to be good for October, November, um, kind of that, that, uh, ch- uh, cruising phase, chasing phase, whatever you want to call it. Do you do that same concept for stand locations within a bedding area as far as picking a location that you believe this is where I can get in, get out, hang a tree stand, and now we're going to cut and design it in this manner? Or is that something that's typically not part of your uh, strategy? So we design hunting locations, to your point, you know, and this is not my first part of the equation. We build habitat to, to gain interest and we want the deer as frequently on the property as, as possible. And let's be clear about this. Things change, right? You make some changes and, and they're going to react. Um, but to your point, and I think it's an excellent point is picking many stand selection sites, a part of that process. And, and sometimes we just focus on an area where we think we can get in and out of them and, and building the improvements around that. Naturally, the deer's flow and movement, like for my example, like a good, good example, of my property, I've got pressure, on the, the north side of my property. And I want deer to travel west and east. I want them to enter the property, but what, once I once they enter, I want them to go from the west to east location. So they give me more opportunities to, to harvest them. And so it was designing the property around movement. And movement is also intended to keep your deer on your property longer. So sometimes the instances and volume of cutting that you have will allow the deer to stay on your property longer. One example of the season was I had a Good on, let's say, I don't think it was mid-October. Uh, it was the October lull, and I had nine bucks, nine, not five, okay, 46 acres, nobody's managing deer, blah, 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 right? I'm not special. I just, I knew I can do a, a lot of these little things correct. I had nine deer on my property, two shooter bucks. Now, I didn't pick the right location, so I don't know. I'm not perfect every time, but the deer moved in a cadence from one bedding area to the next. And the way we designed these bedding areas is I was collecting trail camera data each interval. So sometimes it's not just building the infrastructure to um, hunt, it's building the infrastructure to collect data. And so I use that data to say, okay, when did they use that area? Why are they in that area? What deer are they socializing with? You know, how do they uh, involve themselves with some of the doe herd at that point? And so it's thinking about that individualistic deer because I'm not hunting, you know, multiple four and a halfs or five and a half, five and a half. I'm I'm hunting one particular deer, and I'm trying to dial in his particular interests. Again, how he relates to you know other deer in the landscape. And the trick I think is figuring out that deer's tells. And I'll tell a quick story: a deer that I hunted many years ago, his trick was figuring out in certain wind conditions. And I build bedding areas to promote wind in certain aspects. And this deer preferred this particular bedding location that I cut into an area on a north wind. And 
it was really positioning his body and influencing him to look a certain way, to move a certain way. Like we're physically positioning deer almost like they're in kennels and they're not caged, but to move and relate to the landscape in, in a manner where they're going to project themselves in a location. So when we're cutting these bedding areas, we're physically trying to orient deer in certain aspects. So they, they, they're pronounced, their movement is more pronounced in a particular direction. Uh, that shapes how they look at the landscape and move across the landscape. So if they see a visual and they've got a good area that they're looking into, they're going to be more comfortable walking in that area. You're not going to be able to hunt them in that. So it's separating those areas where you can get in and out of based on some of their preferences. And most of these mature bucks, and I don't want to make it just about mature bucks, most of these mature bucks in our particular areas, visual is absolutely paramount. That's why on a highly topography, topography driven area, you can emplace deer in multiple locations. And it's giving them right volume of cover, the right amount of food in, in adjacent areas. And so one of the things I'm focused on my own property is increasing food within those bedding areas. I am so lucky because I have little vernal pools and I've been able to capture water and I, I just have a lot of hydrology. And the benefit is I can water all these plants. I can suck deer into particular areas and they're gonna stay there longer. And the intervals of movement in and out of bedding areas is reduced. And as a result, they're going to stay on my property longer. And you can influence really how long deer are sticking to your particular property based on the volume of cutting, the type of plants, how you distribute water in the landscape. And again, this is the difference a little bit between maybe the Don Hagens and the Tony LaPrats is this is a little bit more integral to understanding the ecosystem and the volume improvements you need to make, particularly on really, really tough ground. You know, one thing I want to say that you know stems off of something you just said. You said about mature bucks. You and I like to hunt mature bucks. However, it is not all about mature bucks, and I will I will say that all to the end. But the one thing I want to say is anybody who's listening to this and they're trying to take something away for their implementing on their property, mature bucks are the lowest hole in the bucket. And if you can do something that influences a mature buck, you can do something that will influence any deer that you want to harvest in the woods. And that's something I firmly believe. So um, getting a little bit more detailed in bedding areas too. So um, one, one common thing that I, I hear a lot of foresters, even some consultants and other things say is, you know, the same age forest that we have in so much of Pennsylvania, an easy way to make a bedding area is to overwhelm, is, is to remove canopy and overwhelm the understory and deer are going to use it. And that's a very common thing that we're just going to cut trees, we're going to reduce the canopy, and they're going to figure out how to use that landscape on themselves. And then you just figure out how to hunt it around that. And I know that's really not your strategy. And there, there's a there's a good mix of of uh, whitetail professionals that cut in specific manners more more detailed than just saying, "Hey, we're we're gonna we're gonna do a timber harvest, a, a very hard." timber harvest and we're going to just set the age of the of the cut back so let's dig into that a little bit more i mean um age of the cut's important for you age of the forest is important for you but i mean enlighten somebody that's you know like myself who, who wants to be educated a little bit more like how should i view a bedding area on my property if i've got um the same age forest and i just want to improve and stack more deer in there and the or orientation of how i cut so to speak yeah, so I think one of the most important things is you always have to look at, you know, your property's orientation in relationship to the sun. You know, sun drives radiant energy, which increases the amount of energy on the forest floor. Pretty pretty well understood by most people. Cutting canopy without any real purpose is, is another failure that most people 
I, I think stumble in on. And and a lot of times they're cutting betting areas. You just I'm gonna I'm gonna put a clear cut in here, and we don't typically use clear cuts as a means to establish betting areas. They could be an aspect of it. Deer typically use the margins. So in our term, the science world's eco term, uh, excuse me, ecotone. And in that ecotone, that creates uh, a variation in, in microclimate. And so there's going to be a little bit more heat, a little more water, a little variation in plant life. You know, these plants that are existent in the, those particular areas, there's in a foot by foot section of, of ground, there's 5,000 seeds approximately that are resident through eons. So sometimes when you disturb the soil, you don't know what you're going to get. So this whole regime of, you know, I guess tree canopy manipulation and soil disturbance gets you somewhere. The next step back to the ecological function is what is that tree doing for? Is it in an area that's of good you know, quality. We look at the soil. Um, we look at the quality soil. Pick up and smell the dirt. Look at the profile of the a particular soil. That'll give you some indication. Really, what we tell people a lot of times is look at the height of the, the particular plant. Is it tall or short? And that will be an indicator of the quality of soil. So once you cut a tree, you can tell the age of that particular tree. And when you're thinking about it, you're thinking about it, it's in relationship to the other trees around it. A lot of times in these even age managed forests, they're anywhere between 80 and 120 years old, you're going to realize a lot of those trees have not reached peak maturity. So having a plethora of trees that are, you know, eventually reaching peak maturity, taking some co-dominant trees that maybe are not of quality, um, maybe they're dead disease deformed. We try to get those species out of there to promote, you know, timber stand improvement. And I don't really focus on the timber stand improvement versus the forest stand improvement in general. They sound about the same. One of the goals is I want to have an economic benefit or, or a habitat or, or hunting benefit. And so to promote wildlife interest means create as much food value in a particular area. One strategy might be, you know, create an opportunity for other plants to grow in a particular area. And that might mean you remove all the trees that you don't like and you want to institute conifers. Very, very prudent, you know, typical opportunity. And you can use treetops for you know, basically shielding those particular plants, it's free fencing, and you're introducing plants that you think will, you know, reside in that particular landscape. But again, it's matching the soil type, you know, to the particular, you know, index and related plants that typically grow in those areas. And a lot of people make make a mistake there. One of the strategies that I walk into the properties is I look at the age class of trees. I may even cut a tree when I'm there. And then based on that, I'm deciphering what specific species I want to keep and what I don't want to keep. I'm a big fan of hinge cutting. I mean, I am, I'm about as pro hinge cut as you possibly can get. That doesn't mean I'm hinge cutting within bedding areas. I may be hinge cutting to control deer movement. And so it's being smart about what trees you use to create the right volume of cover. And a mistake that most people make is they make hinge cuts too tight. Um, we cut a lot of lines. We call them walls of cover. If you mm. listen to my podcast, walls of cover, it's a Jim Ward term, but you know, a lot of us in the industry use that term, I feel like. And so we're building long walls of cover, but within those walls, we create the infrastructure where deer want to exist. And so it's taking the right features. It's considering the slope. You know, a lot of times a huge, I guess a huge problem, and I'm going a roundabout way to answer your question is mm -hmm. you have, um, you have a hillside and we talked earlier about sometimes I terrace these hillsides and I may pitch it inward or outward. And that depends on the volume of water. That depends on what I think I can grow on that, that particular hillside. Sometimes I'll pitch the back of the hillside a certain way. 
so the deer are more inclined to use it. The vegetation on the upper hillside may require me to do multiple benching. You know, so there's a lot that goes into this strategy just thinking about a hillside. Well, the key point, there's an area somewhere down the kind of line where um, it gets a little, uh, I think convex would be the term. And in that particular area, that's where we start really our improvements. So the slope and gradient is huge in the decision-making of where deer want to be. These guys get these mountainous properties. They don't know where to start. And a lot of times it's picking the right key point on the hillside to start building these bedding areas. And that's where I've really been able to do a nice job at figuring these things out. One new concept I want to just throw out here because you guys, there's a lot of users on this and the listeners that want to hear this, Mitch, is one of the strategies that came out a few years ago, and actually Ellinger just published something on this, and I really appreciate it because him and I talked about it, is guys are coming and they're actually uprooting trees to give on hillsides um, a visual kind of limitation. And that's something we came up with six years ago in the design process to eliminate deer's visual downslope, giving them some visual in certain orientations, but not giving them the full gamut, giving them kind of an acute angle to look at downhill, which allows you to hunt them easier. And that strategy has worked all over the place. In fact, we were on an awesome property a couple of years ago, my partner and I, and we were cutting this property and basically it was entirely wind thrown. And it was some of the best bedding you've ever seen in your life. It had choke cherry up the kazoo. And you know, I'm a huge choke cherry guy. Choke cherry is my favorite plant, period. If you don't have it on your property, start including it. And, uh, you know, I really am a big fan of certain plant species because I see the ecological benefit, particularly to our deer. And then, you know, I'm, I'm just trying to implement new techniques and, and, um, you know, that we'll, I'll talk more about that on my own podcast, but I think some of these concepts are, are huge for these landowners where nobody's going to do this work. Nobody understands it. And if you as a landowner say, hey, you know, knock over that tree or cut that tree over there and you have some strategy behind it, you're going to be so far beyond anybody's wildest dreams. You should start pulling in those better deer and big deer like good areas. That's just a fact. Mm. You know, if you create a quality, low pressure area, you're likely to have a good quality deer show up at some point. So you, you said a couple of specific things throughout our conversation and, and brought up something I wanted to touch on in that in that last little bit. But you, you talked a little bit about segmentation, um, you know, you know, layering, things like that. You know, we're layering a cake. And, and another another thing I've heard other people say is, is you're, you're creating like a, you're creating pockets, right? You're, you're, you're creating pockets in the landscape. And there's different ways to do that, um, you know diversity you know you talked about adding conifer well that's going to create a new edge i know you i, I saw an instagram reel you did you started adding in a couple places you, you put some native grasses within a bedding area to kind of do some some different uh layering and structuring and different structure within that bedding area um and then another thing you just brought up is walls of cover and that is one thing i, I I really want to dumb that down and break that down in, in, into like 101 level because people hear about walls of cover and I, I think there's a lot of confusion. So I want to, first of all, when you talk about a wall of cover, are you making a, a, a wall? Are you segmenting an area that this wall is not penetrable or is it is this a permeable wall but it's creating an edge that hopefully deer you know let's say the 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 wall so to speak is uh 
is a north and south line, and deer do have the ability to go east and west to it because it's permeable, but it's 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 a line that's favored to get them to move in a north and south manner. Or are you, are you comfortable within a bedding area or an edge or feathering or whatever, creating areas that they're not going through that. It is truly a wall. It's high. They can't see, and they can't pass through it. Yeah, and this is a trick. So if you're going to – the wall of cover is difficult because there's variations in walls. Some walls are shorter than long and longer. Sometimes it depends on the species that we're, you're working with. I work with a lot of hard maples, so that's one of the harder species to hinge cut. And it's you have to be very particular on when you hinge cut that tree. So you can't just go in on a very, very cold day – the tree isn't as you know there's not a the vascular system is is not as frequently moving up and down and so the xylem and and phalem is not producing you know nutrients and so you have to be very selective when you cut hinge cut particular trees most of the times i'm trying to stack trees on trees so this is this is a technical thing you're trying to align yourself to the next tree and you can do this in a domino effect and a lot of times that's that's pretty productive however Sometimes if you cut them wrong, they, they break off and it becomes a maintenance issue. You want to be able to sometimes access these walls of cover because, you know, one of the tricks is giving enough structure so the deer may utilize that, like in your example, as a north-south movement. But it also could be a concealment thing. So, like, a lot of times I'm working on a hillside, and in hillside I'll do this giant wall of cover. The intention of that hillside is to break it up. It's it, or, or sometimes it's to break it up and direct movement. And within that area, I'll cut my bedding. I'll do my bedding cuts. And bedding cuts could be felling trees, you know, typical notch fell. Um, sometimes we do a couple of different uh, styles of cuts, et cetera. Um, sometimes we'll, oh, we'll, we'll just, you know, we'll, we'll hinge cut sometimes within those areas. Sometimes we'll uh, pollard trees or coppice trees. I mean, there, there's the, those styles within those bedding areas to create structure. And again, you know, the idea of a, a wall of cover is generally to create a back wall, almost think of a baseball backstop. And adjacent to that or next to that, very few things can grow depending on the sun orientation. So it's thinking about setting up that wall so there isn't a lot of maintenance on one side particularly. And it's shading that out, giving an opportunity for a deer, depending on the slope, uh, to have interest in that particular area. Permeable walls are good because deer want to see in certain instances. So having these very dense walls that are uh, confining or they don't give a deer a visual opportunity to see past it could be problematic. So in some instances, we'll make walls more permeable and in some intervals, we'll make it tighter. It just depends. So I'll look at the landscape for the volume of vegetation. I'll introduce a wall to, again, mostly segregate deer. And sometimes I build boxes. Sometimes I zigzag them. You know, think of a zigzag line. Um, sometimes I'll orientate where it's gonna flow like a snake. You know, there's different cutting techniques to make these deer move in certain orientations. And there's a purpose. Sometimes I'm speeding up movement. Sometimes I'm slowing it down. You know, there's there's examples in this equation where this wall, depending on the height, may want deer to, if you make it too high, sometimes deer won't want to be up against it very closely. So one example is a hedgerow. When you have a very dense hedgerow that doesn't have a lot of porosity, uh, they don't tend to be very close to it. And... A lot of times I'm building and, you know, this isn't giving any secret away. Watch the deer walk up and down the hedgerow. If there's food and a little bit of cover in that hedgerow, they have a tendency to be right up against it. And so the other point of that is that hedgerow collects minerals, water, 
and, and things that, of that nature that give that deer an interest in that particular area. So you're stacking all these aspects adjacent to a wall and all of a sudden the deer are highly attracted to that particular area. When I'm cutting walls, the one thing I will do is I'll decide to cut a wall live or dead, meaning dead, dormant, live when it's live. And it may be for a particular benefit. Sometimes I'll cut during the growing season just to attract deer to a particular area and I'll save a wall um, in order to gain interest. Maybe I'm building in, you know, maybe I'm building a bedding area adjacent to that. Maybe I'm just developing a line of movement. One thing I've done, and I did this on my own particular properties, I have a, a hillside, and on this hillside, I've stacked the wall in intervals, and I've created beds, and I've shoveled them out. And what I've done is in between that, and this is north-south orientation, on the other side, I've created a wall on one side and, and uh, grass cover. And that grass cover gives them that feeling of comfort because they could jump in and out of the grass, but they're actually stuck. They can't go to the other side. Uh, they can't go to that western edge. They can only stay on the eastern edge. And that puts them right in my bread basket down the way. So they're going to, they're going to stay on that edge a lot harder because of the style cutting adjacent to the planning system that I've had in play. Um, so hopefully that answers some of your questions, but these walls can be various heights, various density. They can be excellent sources for creating nesting cover for turkeys. I had a property that I worked on this year where I cut it. And it, the intention of it was to build nesting cover. And that's what we use the wall of cover for is to develop nesting cover. So the depth of that cover and the ability for, you know, a young, small, you know, turkey to get in there was really, really important. It gives them the structure to roost on it. And sometimes you can plant trees in these walls of cover as well. And sometimes I have living trees in there, depending on what I'm trying to promote. I mean, it's just, there's a lot of things that go into each one of these decisions. And let me just be clear. It's not just a line of trees sometimes. Yeah, right. And I think that does answer the question, John. The, the, the thing that gets me, and you know, I'm somebody who loves to overthink everything just because I love this. I love to manipulate stuff. I love deer and love deer hunting and everything else. But, um, you know, I, I really find like you were talking about the, the dead walls. Like I've used dead walls um, actually for access routes along a food plot where I'll, I'll create a, a wall that I can use for basically my own concealment. I mean, if you're clearing, let's just say it's a monotonous timber, right? And you're clearing a food plot. You know, there's some, some people would say you don't want any of that. Those brush piles are bad. I personally disagree. I think you can use some of those tops to your, to your benefit in cases for entering and exiting without deer seeing you or hopefully hearing you and creating trails and stuff like that. So in a case like that, I've seen where that wall will work. However, my application in bedding, um, I think it just comes down to knowledge and experience, right? Um, and that can be anybody. I, I'm looking to learn all the time. You know, we're stewards of the game, stewards of wildlife. I want to learn how can I cut and orient deer in a way that's going to just improve my goals, which is to hold them longer, provide more of what they need. And then really the, the, the big one is steer them where I want them to go and hopefully steer them in a location that's advantageous for a bow spot. Because I, my, my dominant goal is I want to shoot a deer with the bow. Now, I'll kill a deer with anything. I don't really care, and I'll kill at any time of the season. That's just my preference. So those specific goals, you know, that, that can be uh, – that's a journey for me and, and learning how to cut through that. And I think there's a lot of different philosophies in how to get there. Um, and, uh, you know, you've had a lot of experience, and I'm, I'm just – I'm rambling at this point, but it's, it's, it's all real good stuff. I love it and, and appreciate your input to it. 
Yeah, I think the biggest thing if you're designing a property around bow hunting, you know, you're you're a lot closer to game, and that's obvious, right? Um, obviously, we want people to be able to extend the range and be comfortable shooting further distance, but most of us aren't, you know, including me. Like I, I prefer them at 20 yards, but you know that that always doesn't happen. So you know, whatever your max range is should be kind of part of your design philosophy. I try to stack deer as close as I can to my hunting locations. And that that seems obvious for some people, but what the problem now lies is my intrusion factor is so great. How do I give the balance of, you know, minimal intrusion, not impacting the deer, you know, so it's it's positioning them in the way where you can get as close as possible. You always hear these really good hunters talk about hunting these deer basically in the margins. They're hunting just this, this off wind that just misses the deer. And, and I'm actually designing properties, influencing wind, the way that wind travels along the landscape and then putting deer in specific areas and, and oriented to them to benefit them for the wind, but also give me the opportunity to get as close as possible. And so I worked with a client. I was in, um, uh, where was I recently? I don't know. I was, I'm in a new place every week. So where I was, you know, so um, I, I was talking to this particular client about channels and cutting channels to create airflow. This is a concept that is, is not new. I, I'm not revolutionary, revolutionizing this concept, but cutting channels to create deer flow. Well, if you create these very open pockets, so your regeneration cuts, a lot of times air will swirl those particular areas depending mm-hmm. on its orientation. So those areas are very hard to hunt. And so in placing deer in those areas and giving them an opportunity to benefit from that cutting is really critical. So it's not just cutting timber like we were talking earlier. It's cutting the deer, cutting timber to allow the deer to be advantaged because of the wind conditions. And it's understanding how those wind conditions influence their interests and then how they position themselves as a result of that. And so you could be very, very specific on where you place deer. And one of the things that I like to consider as like a, a a rule stick of success and i'll just take you know my own particular property so i have layered systems where there's buffers between me and the deer right and forget the plant material it doesn't doesn't matter at this point can you get in and out of your tree stand without being detected mm. and i hunted a, a particular stand this year nine times I, I typically hunt five times a year i hunted it nine times the last time i hunted it um, this was during bow season with my son. We had seven deer in the field. And as I'm like sneaking out of the particular area, you know, I'm like, oh my gosh, am I going to bust them? The closest one was 28 yards. We got out of the stand. You know, they didn't cut our tracks. There was no, you know, there, there was no issues at all. And I get a picture on my cell camera right when I get back to the car. They're still up there. They didn't run away. So you've got to look at these little indices. And to me, that's, that's what I remember about my deer season. It's not the deer that I killed. It was, did this system or did did my strategy work? And and sometimes that's more meaningful than, you know, I know you killed the giant buck this year, but sometimes it's more meaningful than having a, a giant buck, you know, sitting there and, and being able to take pictures because you are successful and you're doing something that's meaningful and you're seeing results. And and for some of you that aren't killing giant bucks, that's okay. Um, and this isn't all about giant bucks. Like Mitch said, it's, it's about finding success in some of these small strategies that seem to be working. And I can tell you, that's my most notable experience this year because I can't believe that I was able to get out in that instance. 
You know, I, I said this on another podcast not too long ago. My wife got, uh, well, she'll get disgusted with me. Of course, she's tired and ready for hunting season to be over, and it, and it never is. And she, um, you know, I, I was fortunate. I was, I had tagged out uh, the past two seasons. I, I tagged out fairly early with a buck tag. You know, shot some doe and stuff like that. And uh, you know, I, I'll have people be with friends and family and stuff, and they'll be like, "Well, are, are you satisfied now?" And uh, my wife's like, "No, he's never happy." I said, "You know, it's it's funny because it's." A double-edged sword the the kill is obviously the the icing to the cake in what you were trying to accomplish but that's not what i enjoy i enjoy hunting i enjoy the process i enjoy everything about leading up to it and you know i'd be lying to say that um like like i'm thinking about the kill when i'm in the tree stand when i'm in a tree stand most of the time i'm looking at what this this spot has to offer and how can i make it better and, and I, like that's all the time that's how my mind thinks constantly i hunted a property this week it was you know one of the first times i was ever able to hunt it and i i had had some influence in helping this person with food plot orientation and stuff and they said hey why don't you come try to shoot a doe here so as i'm sitting there and i saw what we did from the food plot stance i'm looking at the rest of their property thinking man if we would do this this and this that would put us in the direction for I think potential success, a better better hunting opportunity, and that's what I love, and I think that's what most of us love when you really enjoy um, white tails and, and and this from a year round perspective. It's tough because you know you you give these examples and ideas and things work, and then all of a sudden they don't work, and you're like, wow, you know, I, I hear a lot of discussion on waterholes, and you know, the focus on you know their their significance on the landscape, and a lot of the areas that I work in you know, water is very prevalent and, you know, water holes, for example, and I, I've done stu- recent studies on this with clients and myself, their utilization only increases at the point where there's an inflection point where, you know, the vegetation starts to senesce and there isn't as much value in the landscape. But, you know, a lot of times these deer are switching to, you know, wooding material. And one of the suggestions I want for a lot of these clients is to think about the volume of wooding material on your property. Today, um, I had a rumor, somebody called me and said a big deer got hit over by your property. My property's basically sandwiched between a bunch of dudes that hunt a lot and a switchback road that guys fly up and down hitting deer. So I'm not in a great area, right? And somehow I'm, I'm, I'm able to hunt these deer and kill big bucks. Don't ask me why, I think, I think maybe I'm blessed. But beyond that, the big thing to me is thinking about, you know, what your landscape has an off to offer and taking it slow. If you're not willing to hire a consultant, there's nothing wrong with that. But what you can't do is you can't sit idle. If you have a woodlot that isn't productive, that you're not seeing the deer, you need to make some decisions. If you're not comfortable to make decisions, start doing some research. Um, I wouldn't pay as much to the YouTube channels and some of those guys. I think Jeff Sturgis does a great job marketing. There's tons of good guys that are out there doing it. But what's their hands-on experience? Guys that are actually able to get their hands dirty. And what you'll find is as you start to get your hands dirty and make some decisions and mistakes. So when my clients, I say, hey, you can't get me, you know, I can't get to them till 2025. And I give them all these homework assignments and I say, go screw up your property because I'm going to fix it when I'm there. And it gives us a chance to interact in a way where they've learned and I've been able to teach and it becomes a more team uh, oriented type scenario. Have that relationship with the folks that you hunt with. Like Mitch, you brought this up, you're helping people. Like use that as an influence to architect and shape your design and philosophy. And you're not going to get it right every time. You don't, 
if you have me come and give you 100% of the answers, does it mean as much as it would if you, you know, figured it out yourself? Probably not. However, you could have somebody come and give you the recommendations. And at the same point, if you're doing the work, you're going to get the net benefit out of it. Or maybe you need some help doing the work. Whatever the case may be is get people around you that have similar goals and interests and figure out how you can you know build that companionship around design. Hopefully this, you know, listening to this podcast gives you an opportunity to think differently about your property. I'm not giving you all the answers here, but I'm giving you a lot of information to think about. And really what I tell clients is be different. That's the goal. If you can just be different, you'll probably do better than most people. And that's being smart about how we hunt, where we hunt, how we cut, what we cut. And, you know, some of the examples on my particular clients is um, I have a 72 year old client. He's one of my favorite guys and he shot uh, biggest three bucks in his life after we cut and laid out his property, right? 72 years old. How much more does that man have to live? He's experiencing the best moments of his life and he's doing the work. He's actually doing the work out there and he's getting the enjoyment out of it. So the more we hunt, the less we learn. So sometimes it's taking to Mitch's example, sitting in that tree stand and thinking about everything that's going around saying, don't, don't degrade your decisions. Don't degrade yourself, but think about what you can do. And there's a million different things that you can do. And there's not 100% correct solution to anybody. And that's why having these debates with these consultants about I'm right or you're right or his property's better. Think about the confluence of the areas that they're hunting. Think about their experience and think about what they bring to the table. If you can give somebody that can give you a quick ROI and, and give you the, the ability to level up, well worth the ability to listen to them and focus on you know their ability to influence and, and give you some decision opportunities. And one of the things with me, Mitch, is I don't know everything. And I've been so fortunate every night I sit and I read. I'm reading stuff about nothing to do with deer hunting. I'm studying many different things that relate to having a better perspective on just overall health and health of our landscapes. And I think that's very important when we're starting to make some of these decisions. And I think if people are healthier in their mind and they're more uh, inclined to uh, explore different ecology principles, you'll get away from some of the information that's uh, convolutes your mind that's that's on YouTube. And I, I hope people start thinking different. And there's a lot of good stuff on YouTube, but I think we get sucked into this one particular technique is gonna get you there. And guess what? Fire isn't gonna solve everything. It's not. And guess what? Timber cutting isn't going to solve anything. It's not. And it's just thinking maybe piece of those in the right particular uh, uh, cadence might get you to the point of success. So I guess that's a little bit of my keynote, Mitch. I think that's a great, great point. And I was I was going to let you go, but I just thought of something I really want to ask you, and it doesn't have to be long, but you, you, right. bro you brought up wind through the bedding area. And wind, being a steward of the wind, I think, is something really, really interesting. I'm just curious, John, do you have any tips for anybody to say, like, this is a good way that, or this is a way I've learned how wind moves through terrain and how how to manipulate it. You know, I've uh, I, I listened to a podcast uh, with not too long with Troy Pottinger, and he talks about out west that they've got old man's beard hanging at all kinds of different elevations within trees, and he really likes to watch what the wind is doing. It'll stand in a location for a long time. I'm just kind of curious. Do you have any thoughts on on reading the wind? Um, it just from a general sense and not getting too crazy into detail from cutting and hunting and everything else. So I don't want to reference people to the podcast I did, but I'm going to real quick. I did a podcast this year on wind and Mitch, you love this stuff. And I actually did that podcast because I thought you might listen to it. And uh, 
Hopefully you did. And if you didn't, that was, that was for you, actually. Uh, You don't know that, but um, we've talked enough where where hopefully that was valuable. Um, But here's what I'll say. Um, We design bedding areas in the same principles um, where how we hunt an area. We don't want to go in them. And we design bedding areas so they're not huntable. (laughs) And that seems in opposition of what everybody uh, tries to do. And so how we can influence uh, or influence those those things. And and I can think of a a particular area that I caught recently where there's uh, a primary head slope and then off that's kind of a nose slope. So it kind of contours down, kind of like your nose. And, you know, we wanted certain aspects of that to be warm and cold. And a lot of times we'll cut the wind in certain orientations so the deer are looking in a particular position. Think about how wind travels across the landscape. So there's going to be areas where there's thermal conductivity, air is heating, it's radiating, and then we have cold suck. So there's no such thing as thermals in the evening. That's a big misconception. Um, but as air sinks, it's going to fit into these different pockets. And you're going to have this basically opposing viewpoints of warm areas, cool areas. That creates a rotating cycle of air. And sometimes that circular motion influences where a deer is going to sit and orient itself. So as an example, if you have hard lines and soft lines, or, you know, you have trees with there's more uh, less transparency, like conifers up against an open line, that's going to have a tendency to create a wall. And at that wall, it's going to be convergence of wind. And that's where the deer are going to try to orientate themselves. And that's why these margins between these different cuttings tend to be a focal point for deer. So orienting the deer in a direction that you want them to go or putting them in a position where they're comfortable. And this could be multiple deer. Remember, if you pay attention to um, what deer like is they want to position themselves in different orientations. A lot of times it's for comfort. reasons. So giving him the right volume of comfort in accordance with, you know, these cutted, cutted channels. And in this case, off that nose, I cut a long channel down. So air flew down that channel. And then what I did, I distributed it almost like a stream into one pocket and the other pocket. So think of like your lungs and it branches off. And in that area where it branches off, I created convergence of different um, ecotypes or uh, ecotypes and ecotones. And what that did is it created a spinning of the air. So it's kind of like, I mean, I know this is probably like level 500 or 600 for folks, but what it does is it puts deer in particular areas and allows them to reside based on different wind conditions. And it's reading those. And think of that whole bronchial tube, you know, esophagus, bronchial tubes splitting off. And then these channels of movement and you can influence and influence deer in particular areas based on the cutting cells and techniques. You have to look at the elevation. You have to look at the tree, the volume of trees, the composition of those trees, the density of those trees. That's all friction of the wind. And that will dictate where deer want to be and why. And my partner thinks I'm crazy and I am because I hunt really tough areas. And if this works in 46 acres, I live in Tully, New York. Go look it up on a map. It's not the capital of the deer. It's uh, really the capital of nothing uh, and not the deer world. If I can be successful here, so can you. Just got to, you know, think a little bit deeper about some of these things. That makes sense. It absolutely does. John, I really appreciate you coming on. I know this is a busy time of the year for you. So I really appreciate you taking time and coming on to my show. Let me pick your brain. I really like to, to pick your brain when I get the chance. So I thank you. Um, real quick, um, 
plug Whitetail Landscapes, plug what you're doing, and I know you said you're, you're a ways out, but if people want to look into you, um, where can they find you? Yeah, so I'm at whitetaillandscapes.com. I do have some social media presence. You can see me on Instagram. I'm trying to increase that. I'm on the road a lot. I work with a lot of clients, so it's tough. Um, I'm not like a big YouTuber to get people attracted to my business. My podcast is obviously out there. You can listen to me and learn from me. Mitch, you've been on my podcast. You're going to be in my podcast again this year. You know, Mitch does, you know, we got a food plot segment. Mitch is going to be involved. We'll have a bunch of guys involved with that. So it's just, just follow me. Um, This podcast is awesome. You have actually some of the best guests compared to all the Sportsman Empire, um, you know, type podcasts that are here. You've had some of the best guests, period. I've listened to your podcast. So I'm a big, I guess, proponent of you and what you're doing. And um, I think you bring a lot of value to the table and you have a ton of experience. And I think it's important that people, you know, pay attention to to you in Pennsylvania and really across the country because guests that you have on are great and you're great. You know, it's they're great conversations. Well, on that note, John, <laughs> thank you. I appreciate it. I appreciate your kind words, John. Uh, yeah, it's good, sure. having, good having you on the show and uh, I can't wait to do it again. So take care, man. Uh, I really appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Mitch. Talk to you soon. See ya.